Hey everyone, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. I'm moving for the 12th time in about four years. And when you move, there's this weird sense of melancholy that you get because all of the things ever are sort of compartmentalized now. You know, you have all your boxes and they're stacked on top of each other. You have this sock that you haven't seen in years, a trinket that represents you from a past life. It's this really big compression of time and space. And for a long time, I was really lost within life. That's why I move so much. That's why I still move so much. And I think most people are lost to a certain extent. I was wandering around trying to find this capital H home, and I was trying to find this place beyond the physical, right? A place where I felt warm and safe and welcomed, and I'm seeking out community. And that's really hard to find. I was a loner when I was little. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And when you are in the younger generations, especially those younger than I am, you tend to rely on online friends for a lot of your community-seeking needs. I love my online friends, but there's still a gap there. And there have been many efforts to make the internet into somewhat of a third place. And it is in a way, but you still have to log off eventually. You have to turn off the phone, you have to shut down the tab. It's still you, like, rattling around somatically, soulfully alone. And we have this massive bias towards individualism. And the reason that I talk about individualism so much is because it's something that I personally struggle with. I want to be big and strong and I'm viscerally driven towards being an individual because I feel like asking for help shows weakness and that's a lot about ego. But asking for help, and I found this out very forcefully recently just with the panic attacks that I've been going through, is foundational to existence. When we try to replace the pieces of our lives that require community with ourselves or some sort of numbing mechanism and take on all this stuff and do all these things that really require us to rely on other people, and when we get frustrated that we can't do these things alone that require the support of others, that frustration is misplaced because we need communities. We need that sense of belonging and purpose and ritual. And when we are alone, it's really painful. Gen Z and millennials are the first generation to be truly nihilistic. The loss of religion, the extreme polarization, the constant news flow, we're all really familiar with it. It creates a sense of like, LMAO, okay, like what's going on? That translates wildly to massive disillusionment with the system and the suffering that takes place within said system. But there also has to be an, an acceptance of suffering, which religion provides many, but a void exists within secularism. As Mary Gateskill wrote, whatever the suffering is, it's not to be endured for God's sake, not felt and never ever accepted. It's to be triumphed over. And because some things cannot be triumphed over unless they are first accepted and endured, because indeed some things cannot be triumphed over at all, the story must be told again and again in endless pursuit of an unhappy ending. To be human is finally to be a loser for all we are fated, to lose our carefully constructed sense of self, our physical strength, our health, our precious dignity, and finally our lives. A refusal to tolerate this reality is a refusal to tolerate life, and art based on empowering message and positive image is just such a refusal. The Stanford Marshmallow Prison Experiment is a really good piece on the refusal to tolerate this reality. It's a broad reflection on suffering and true dystopia of the marshmallow test. The author of that piece coins a term, the desire to pass tests, which is reflective of the permeation of being really good at tests so you can be really good in college and get a good job and be happy. But something broke there, right? Like the path is no longer linear. The piece walks through how the world has changed over the past 20 years. Work sucks and you don't get paid enough. Societal education has almost no effect on the income and it's been absorbed into the system and it's become a requirement, even though college isn't really working for people. And this is capitalism's take, the author says, on the Red Queen hypothesis. Now here you see it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. So something snapped, right? People are freaking out. The marshmallow test and the standardization that things like the marshmallow test encourage completely stamp out creativity. People get stuck. 
The author wrote, there's a type of joke that I think as the white people joke, although it's really funny and it doesn't have to be about someone who's white. The joke is about a mid-40s housewife who is way too well-educated and born to be a housewife, so she tries to find the grail of healthy food, organic, GMO-free, low acidity, one diet after another, and she plants a garden, she adopts pets, she joins nonprofits, and she joins the school board, and she reads every novel on NPR's end of the year list, she gets weekly therapy and monthly massages to about the same effect, and she meditates on the present, and she achieves peace of the past, and she contemplates the future, and everything is feng shui, and yet, despite all this, she feels restless, anxious, unhappy, and dreams of some sort of vacation. Sometimes the joke is about an elderly businessman on his second hair transplant and his third cardiac stint and $20 billionth dollar, and his kids have grandkids and his wife is deceased, and when he goes out, he orders scotch more expensive than houses, but that isn't too often. He's seen enough parties, he's seen enough people, he has no strong affections, and he works round the clock fighting tooth and nail for his billions because he's not sure what else exactly he's supposed to be doing. And the joke which you hear on forums or sitcoms or in crowded sports bars go, goes, haha, even though these people are successful, they're still dissatisfied. And I'm here to tell you that this joke is totally backwards. It's because these people have always been dissatisfied that they've achieved success. And this is a fine line, right? Like I'm 100% a marshmallow kid and dissatisfaction curating success is not at all a bad thing. But when that dissatisfaction permeates everything you do and becomes inescapable, that's when it gets scary. The author writes, dystopia doesn't require anything as dramatic as a boot stamping on a human face forever. It doesn't require Selma or the Sasmodat. It doesn't require robot overlords or the singularity. All it requires is for you to accept the way the system works and play along. All it needs is a kid waiting for a marshmallow. And I'll circle back to this, but there's an idea posted by the Pocket Report on TikTok on how younger generations consume news. It's through memes, it's through TikTok shorts that don't have context on what's actually happening, so it becomes completely unserious. It ends up normalizing harmful ideas as part of normal media consumption. But then, it's bad, it reaches a small percentage of the population that is sympathetic to these extremist ideas. But the ideas seem less extremist because if you walk around and a bunch of people have mugshot on shirts, it's like, well, if everybody's wearing him, it can't be that bad to support him, right? So you have this numbing effect from the idea that it can't be that badisms that circularly create badism. This is also seen in the epidemic of fake Karens, these fake videos that capitalize on this idea of Karen, better known as the ridiculously enraged woman. The videos are wildly popular even though they're fake. People are more than happy to be furious at something that isn't real. They capitalize on the current cultural appetite both for righteous outrage and in some cases for retribution. But for the most part, the communal thirst for outrage appears to trump any potential skepticism. Perhaps more to the point, commenters rarely request more context for the behavior depicted in the video or any explanation as to why a person's behavior could escalate from zero to 100 in such a short amount of time, something that would, in almost any other circumstance, be perceived as a sign of mental illness. Nor does anyone ask why we as a culture seem to feel such a profound need to capture total strangers at a moment that they seem to have lost all control. We drink in outrage because we are outraged and we don't know what to do about it. Renee de Resta, I hope I pronounced her name right, wrote this incredible piece for Noma about the rise of independent creators titled The New Media Goliath. Media has shifted away from ad-based revenue to a patronage model, and I understand that like, I'm part of this and I'm super grateful to those who choose to support me, and as someone who does this, thank you. But this can create misaligned incentives where you end up telling the audience what they want to hear, and hopefully I don't do that with you all. Niche media must convert that attention to patronage. A passionate and loyal fandom is critical to success because the audience facilitates virality, which de delivers further attention, which can be parlayed into clout and money. When Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman wrote Manufacturing Consent, the Political Economy of Mass Media in, 19, in 1988, they were more worried about hegemony. They were worried about media driving a singular narrative about things and creating a selective framing and censorship issues. 
but rather it's been the opposite. We don't have big media causing problems in terms of people believing all in the same stuff. What we have now is fractured media. We have fragmented media, we have polarized media, we have distrustful media, and we are watching the world splinter before us. The manufacture of consent is still there, but rather than mass communication, it's niche communication as an effective and powerful ideological institution that carries out a system-supported propaganda function by reliance on market forces, internalized assumptions, and self-censorship, and without over coercion. And this circles back to the marshmallow test. Because there's this void of community, because we're trying to calibrate to suffering, because we're waiting for a marshmallow, but the waiting is at the actual dystopia. We have misplaced outrage that we turn into the consumption of videos about fake Karens. We get behind people selling a newsletter subscription about how the world is going to end. And a lot of anger is on people who want to be rewarded for waiting for their marshmallow. So they laugh at the Karen, buy the subscription. As Ryex Kalmar wrote on Twitter on how this anger is materializing, college-educated people who are experiencing wage contraction disproportionately post on Twitter and who see themselves as lower class, posting about the economy in a year where actual wage work is seeing increasing pay. Now that is an endless source of discourse. Social media convinces you that you are really smart and knowledgeable because you follow sardonic ship posters who are kind of clever and who are capturing the vibe that you are feeling. But it is really worth considering that you live in a bubble and you should look at actual data. It does suck for the people experiencing labor market contraction. It is fair to be dissatisfied, but people who want to make the broad declarations about the economy should also be aware that the lowest end of the labor market is doing better than pre-COVID. When your reality is shattered, from a world that didn't fulfill its promise, its social obligation to you, its promise of a social obligation to you. You're going to seek out niche parts of the internet where you feel like other people are aligned with you. And you see this with the incel community. We see this with the Andrew Tate bros. Basically, we see these people feel like they've been led astray, trying to find some semblance of stability in this fractured and fragmented world. And I get it. I really, really do get it. But these new media goliaths are promising. They're pushing back against the system, but they're just another octopus tentacle trying to drag people in. And they're potentially even more damaging than the system that was already in place because they're encouraging this continued fragmentation and this distrust, but we have all these people who are still waiting on their metaphorical marshmallow and they're not able to find it, so they're going to seek out all of this. In terms of solutions, I don't know. I I mean, I'll, I'll throw some out there, but, you know, build more housing. It's probably not about waiting for more marshmallows, but how do we have more marshmallows for people to pick from? I've talked about this before, but we were really in the midst of a passion crisis where people feel totally connected, disconnected, disconnected from what they are able to do. It's about being mindful about the media that you consume and the incentives in place from those telling you stories that you want to hear and building community where you are. Quickly, just for fun, Borges on time. And yet and yet, denying temporal succession, denying the self, denying the astronomical universe, our apparent desperations and secret constellations, our destiny is not frightful by being unreal, it is frightful because it is irre irreversible and ironclad. Time is the substance I am made of. Time is a river which sweeps me along, but I am the river. It is a tiger which destroys me, but I am the tiger. It is a fire which consumes me, but I am the fire. The world, unfortunately, is real. I, unfortunately, am Borges. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for spending time with me, and I will talk to you all very soon. Bye.